Dr. Gerald Bayer, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be here. It's wonderful. You are joining me from the United Kingdom, where you are a senior research associate at University College of London, UK. Uh, you are studying um, algorithmic approaches to disease and also the pathological rhythms in epilepsy, which is, to me, a fascinating field. Um, before we get into the nitty gritty of this, I, want, I wanted to know how you would describe what you do to someone who is not a scientist. So my main approach was to understand early on in my studies that all of biochemistry, all of life processes are organized rhythmically. So they change over time, but then it's not just change, it's also repetition. And the interesting thing about life is that there's so many things going on, so there's multiple rhythms. And so whether you come from a pure physical or from a musical perspective, it's very, very complicated. And my main idea was to somehow find approaches or scientifically to find out what things are going on in a human body. And after some trials into the heart and into liver tissue, I then came into the brain and I found the most interesting rhythms there. And so now I'm trying to decode the rhythms of the human brain. You're decoding the rhythms of the human brain. Well, I tried That to. is beautiful. You're trying to, of course, like uh, science is that, right? Science is always trying to do things and disproving and, and all that stuff. Um, how did you come upon this? Uh, why the human brain? Well, I think it was more or less accidental that we had a new uh, device installed at the university where I worked in 1996. And that was an MEG, a magnetoencephalogram, which puts like sensors all around your head, like 150. And at that time, dealing with 150 sensors was unheard of. So that's a long time ago, right? And what, what we found is that we can actually have easily access to anything that's going on in my brain at that case, where so they put me under the head. But later on, I found out that uh, people with epilepsy, when it's very severe, then the, the surgeons actually insert the electrodes into the brain, so they drill holes, and then they put the electrodes just at the point where things are happening, and so epilepsy is like the unique possibility to tune into that brain wherever you want, just right where things are happening. So normally you can't do that. It's not possible. But in epilepsy, before you do a surgery, that's where you do it. And so that's why I liked it most when I first saw it. Wow, it almost sounds... Uh like an art as much as a science, you know, like you compared the, the rhythms to music. Um, is, is there a lot of similarity? I guess, I guess rhythm is just rhythm. It doesn't matter if it's in art or in science. Um, I'm not quite sure about that, but we did a lot of audio uh, from the recordings. And what we found is that there's substantial amount of rhythms that seems to make sense to the ear even though it's not like you wouldn't say it's four, four or four to the bar or something, it doesn't have like specific uh, metrum, metrum, but yeah, we don't know. Actually, we don't really know. 
But the nice thing is that the ear is more sensitive to multiple things going on. Because if you visually see many wiggles that go up and down, it looks like incomprehensible. But when you quietly sit there and enjoy the sound of it and the happenings, it's, well, it's more of a feeling. It's not scientific, but to the listener, it's actually enjoyable. Beautiful. And is it just epilepsy that has that kind of um, component? Or, for example, I have what's called myoclonus, myoclonic jerks that just happen randomly. It's benign. It is kind of, I I would say, kind of almost uh, perhaps related to epilepsy. It's a seizure event, I guess. Um, So are there other um, diseases that are similar to that, that also that you would be interested in studying? Or is it really just epilepsy that is unique? Well, epilepsy in itself is many different forms, or there's many different syndromes under that heading. Um, But the interesting thing about epilepsy is that during seizures, these rhythms are more structured and easier to listen to because they are more organized than when you don't have a seizure. So I thought actually because the the normal activity is so complicated, maybe I will not be able to crack that. But the epileptic rhythms seem to be more pronounced, so they are stronger. And because they are abnormal, they are also easier to see or to find. And so it's like it's a starting point only. (laughs) Right. First steps into a terra incognita. And what is the goal? What would uh, what would happen once you you know decode this? So I work with a couple of biomedical engineers, and we're trying to set up stimuli to the brain that will suppress a seizure, or if it has already started, stop the seizure. So it's like because you have the electrodes inside the brain, you can also put like a bit of a current there, and with a tiny bit of an electrical stimulus, you can try to nudge the brain out of the abnormal epileptic rhythm. And as I said, this is for, sorry, this is for surgery. So these are seizures that really take a couple of minutes up to half an hour. So it's really something that where you need to do something if you want to ever improve the people's lives. It's not like a myoclonic jerk, like a quick event. It's it really spoils your day. <laughs> <laughs> and so this could potentially lead to, I mean, I'm imagining in the future, like a, a headset or something that a user could apply on their head that would stop the seizure. Is that, is that uh, like the, the dream later on? You mean a headset to listen to it? or uh, No, but I mean, once we decode this and we learn how to actually send a signal to stop a seizure, is this something that potentially long term, 20, 30, 40 years from now, we could actually implant a device or uh, send a signal through a headset that could potentially stop a seizure? Yeah, yeah. so that should be possible. So currently the implantation is possible, also long term implantation like without destroying brain tissue, without infection or without risk of infection. And so in principle, it's doable today. It's just that we don't really know what to do. So it's experimental. There's a couple of clinical centers that do experiments on that when it's really severe, but uh, it's very empirical, as we call that. It means we're <laughs> trying something and hope for the best. 
And so that's the idea behind the research, to find a bit of a rational where to go in the brain and what to do. And because right, because so uh, much- as you... Sorry to interrupt, but as you just just mentioned, the destruction of, of brain tissue is is something that you have to watch out for. Because once you do have a rhythm and you do have a pattern, you want to do it uh, with as much precision as possible, I would imagine, to stop a seizure. Absolutely. With minimal invasion, without taking any tissue out. But it's less of a concern at the moment because we know that these people will undergo surgery. And that means they really take out a lump of that brain, which is like a big bean, if you like, or even bigger than that, and that will be thrown away. So uh, there's a a loss predicted because they're undergoing surgery. So putting a very thin needle at a a place is nothing compared to that. So it's still beneficial, even if not much comes out at the moment. But as I say, it's very much in a trial and error state, which is ridiculous we're in 2021 right we should do better yeah Yeah, it's it's funny because I'm actually right now um, dealing with um, a provincial government uh, um, my partner and I are moving to a rural area where we want to build a house and you know live in nature but there's no internet (laughs) so you know you're speaking about uh, technology in 2021 and you know to we we don't even have the basic needs of of a a high-speed internet connection so I can totally see you know why there are certain advances that are less advanced than others. (laughs) But all that to say, you were saying they do actual surgery right now? Like, what is the current solution for these patients? It's to take a chunk out of their brain? Yes. uh, Just, well, it's either cut it out, just take a chunk out and throw it away if possible. Or what they're also doing, especially in children, so they burn part of it. So they put a bit of a metal and then they heat it up this thermocoagulation, and then the tissue destroys because it's active tissue that's sort of overexcited and that comes up with bursts of activity that are abnormal. If you sort of melt it like a piece of plastic, right, you heat it up and then it melts, then it just stops being active. And yeah, and children, you can try it. It's also, yeah, you can imagine, right? It seems barbaric. It's horrible. And actually, yeah. the most, uh, the 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 biggest problem is not doing it, but the permission of the parents, because once they hear what is going to happen to their child, most of them don't really agree to it. Although it's most likely beneficial. Wow! So what you're doing is a form of machine learning. Is that correct? The analysis uses machine learning. Yeah. So okay, and then there's a, also the. This other word uh, or this other terminology, data science. So it's really a combination of data science and machine learning that you're doing? Yeah, I think so. Okay, so that would be accurate. Yeah, uh, so essentially what I want to do is I want to, because data science and machine learning, these are two growing fields and and are relatively, I would say, new-ish in the industry, in the technological industry, in academics, in the field of medicine. Um, But... A lot of people don't understand what it is. So I was wondering if you could explain to me, again, as a non-scientist and to my audience, what exactly is machine learning? How does that work? Well, in fact, it's um, a provision of algorithms. So handling of data in order to find patterns in there. 
So I would say the main thing about machine learning is that you have data from not one source, but from many sources that you can jointly analyze them and to see whether there's anything that unites them or anything that divides them. Like if in, I mean, the practical thing would be if you have this, what's it called, the cocktail party conversation, like you put a couple of microphones above a cocktail party and then people are talking some in groups and some just individually to, to each other. And then you have all this mishmash of voices there and you try to sort out who is actually in conversation with who. So you need to sort of assign the sources. And if you do it automatically, that's what machine learning does. It's just an optimal filter, if you like. So you put in a lot of data and then sort of there's some clever shuffling around of this data in the analysis that gives you some candidates for this might be a group that works together and that's another group. And that's, of course, very nice if you have multiple rhythms, right? If brain have many rhythms that go on at the same time because so many things are processed as language and there's vision and there's smell and um, so much to sensory your body sensations. And then you want to sort of pick them out and, and say which one is the abnormal one that is epileptic, which one is the normal one. And that's, of course, a concern for operation because when you operate, you don't want to take out the language center. It's actually wrong. It's here. I'm left-sided. <laughs> you, can't, right. you can't destroy that part, right? Because then people will end up not speaking anymore, similar for listening or seeing. So you have to spare those parts. So you need to identify what's going on, where. So when you are measuring these things, you are looking at all of the, let's say, let's call them uh, rhythms, okay, rhythms or, or languages of the brain or whatever, um, signals. Um, and you're looking at all of them. And like you said, you're trying to, to highlight which one is causing the seizure? Uh, which one is the seizure? Which one so, is the seizure? So part of the rhythms that are the abnormal ones, so that they constitute the seizure. How should I say that? Suddenly something new happens that is not natural, that shouldn't be there, which is what you try to be, prevent because you hope that sort of is the epilepsy. So if that wasn't there, it wouldn't blur your consciousness. It wouldn't make you, uh, what's that called, jerk. It wouldn't make right. you fall down because you lose muscle tone and so on. Do we also know what prompts the seizures? For, like what actually um, creates the seizure? What prompts it? Uh, in general, no. There are specific type of seizures where you know it, like light flickering sometimes is famous for inducing seizures, although it's very rare. You can have music triggering seizures. And I visited a colleague here in Manchester nearby. Uh, he had a patient who had seizures whenever he started to read Imagine how no. horrible. <laughs> really, oh my really goodness. Funny. They would give him this this journal to read and so this this magazine and he picked it up and looked at it and after a short while we could see the epileptic seizure start. <laughs> wow. really, yeah, it's bizarre, but this is more the exception. The normal thing is some rhythms will evolve spontaneously and will not be predictable. It will just come. Sometimes it's more in the morning after they wake up and sometimes it's in the sleep when they enter a certain type of sleep stage. But yeah, it's like mysterious still after 100 years of study. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And how far have you gotten with this research? What have you found so far? 
Oh, I think I have to be very um, humble in this moment because, <laughs> yeah, we do a lot of sort of scientific publications and claim this and that, but in terms of practicalities, I think we haven't really done any better than what the medical doctors do by just feeling just so unfortunately, as a somebody who wants to advertise machine learning and all this computational stuff to the world, I have to say that the best you can get is an experienced neurologist. That's your choice in 2021. And, right. Yeah. But has, have, you, have you made any headway in your research? Like, have you been able to identify some certain rhythms that uh, seem to be suspicious for that? Yeah, we can identify rhythms. We can also automatically classify. So what type it is, which is important because we think the intervention might depend on what type of seizure it is. And so we can put a lot of pieces together, but it's still piecemeal. It's like bits, small bits. And so what we are currently doing with the uh, group of biomedical engineers in Beijing is trying to develop a trial where we'll actually do a prediction of what we are going to do and what the outcome will be so that the doctors can see whether our prediction is actually good. And okay. so that would be the only convincing progress, right? But right. It's just about to start in August. Oh, wow. So that's coming. So yeah. So is that is that going to be a situation where you will um, have uh, participants um, and, and you would induce seizures in order to measure their activity or would it be less uh, invasive than that? Um, it would be less invasive or hopefully less invasive in the sense like we would like to try to induce responses that are normal. Like if you hear something, okay. you recognize a word, then there's in the auditory cortex, there's like a, a small reply that says uh, understood, received. And so more of a specific answer that we would try to elicit. But after predicting it, first say, this is what's going to happen, in which place, and then do the stimulation and then see whether that's actually true or no. And what we so think is that we will so... be wrong. Sorry, sorry. Um, by doing so, does this mean that you'll be able to also decode other things, not just um, ep epileptic signals, but you're also decoding things like you said, uh, the auditory signal? Oh, well, that's the hope. The, in, of course, the hope is that by being at the point where things happen, that we'll have a better access to actually finding out how the brain works when it's normally working. So I'm, of course, also looking into that, but it's very subtle and... I think we'll be successful with the epilepsy, with the other things, I'm not sure. Also, I think that the current scientific approach of pretending to be like the isolated scientist who watches the brain and infers things from that uh, will not be successful in the long run. I think it's like you you have like a foreign culture and you want to sort of communicate with it like they used to go 50 years ago. They sent people to the Amazon and they were trying to find out anthropologically or whatever, what do they people do and do they have church uh, service like we have? And they found, yes, they, they do the same thing like we do. So wait a minute, do you actually know what's going on? And then the new approach said, well, actually, maybe you forget about your own background. You go there, you live with people and you learn their thinking by becoming one of them. 
And I think such a thing can be done with the brain. You can try to interact with that brain and learn via, not via concluding as a physicist, so to speak, but as becoming part of that rhythmic interaction. So that would be more of a, I don't know how to call it, it's like an, an interactive learning of what that brain does, but by starting innocently saying, I know nothing, tell me something. And then so I think all the initial perturbations will lead to nothing, to misunderstanding. And then successively you will say, ah, like a mother talking to their baby, this is an apple, or, no understand, but two years later maybe apple. So you will successively start to learn. So I want to be a brain learner. <laughs> ah, I love that. And I guess that would make sense uh, because you're using algorithms, which is kind of like how the body works. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. The algorithms are mostly artificial and mostly developed on mathematical grounds. Whether the body follows mathematical reasoning is debated, but has never been shown to be true. Do you believe Interesting. It? I don't know if you believe in that we are actually governed by mathematics. I would say I... we are probably much more physiological beings rather than mathematical beings. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's the thing is that I, I'm not, uh, I've never been strong in mathematics. And, and this is one, one part where I, I love listening to others speak about it, um, rather than comment on it, of course. But uh, how, how does one become a brain learner then? Um, the, the devices are very much used these days. They're called brain computer interfaces. So you have the possibility to record the signal, analyze in real time, and give some kind of feedback by stimulating that brain. And people do it mostly like non-electrically, but with I don't know, auditory stimuli or just concentrating on what they're thinking and hoping to get some interaction. But it's quite successful and you can manipulate your own brain activity if you see something on the screen or you hear something from the speakers. So that works to some extent. So you think um, that's the future then? Like you said earlier, you said, I want to be a, a brain learner. Uh, is, that, is that the future of science? Is that uh, the, the best approach then? Uh, I don't know about science. It will be the future for me, I think. <laughs> ah, so this is you personally, not just you as uh, somebody studying epilepsy. Uh, that, that's more personal then. But, but, but because it, it goes against the standard scientific model, so it's much more of a, an experiment that I would like to do. I would like okay. to see whether there's something that can be done. Because the question is, are there any limits to understanding? Is it possible to understand like your own brain at all? Right? People have always challenged that. I mean, it's nice to study a, a, a single cellular organism under the microscope and that all makes sense, of course, and you put your needles then all can touch everything. But when it comes to brain, it, things are a little bit more complex than that. And I'm not sure that just being detached from the brain will ever work to understanding it. I think so you are you actually, one. well, I was going to say, are you actually actively um, doing things to, to test your own brain and to learn from your own brain? Um, and not via cables, via introspection, okay. yes, but not via cables. And what have you learned so far personally from your own research into your own brain? 
Uh -huh. uh, the, the interesting thing that while everybody agrees that there is your inner voice, so you sort of reason to yourself and you can use different languages or you can do even dialogue with yourself or with imagined other people. And there's also agreement about visualization so that you see something like dreamlike, you can imagine things. But I think there's also an auditory background. So if you, if you start uh, tuning a little bit behind the scene, there's actually a very rich auditory background. It can be musical or just sounds, at least in my case. And I'm not able to really communicate that, but I can just observe that. And I think that's very interesting because it, I don't see anything written about that. And I keep asking people, so I might ask you, are you aware of any sounds or music that goes on in your brain? Like, would you? Constantly. Constantly. Oh, okay. <laughs> always. I, I, I'm always, I always have um, a, either a soundtrack or a, a, a sound or a something that's always there, um, you know, uh, other than sleep, obviously, or perhaps it's there during, during sleep, but it's very, very interesting. I've been very interested in, in, in this, um, in this stuff as well, you know, because I, I actually in 2018 lost the ability to walk independently for about eight months. And it's been a medical mm -hmm. mystery as to why that happened. Uh, they thought it was multiple sclerosis, but it 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 mm -hmm. led me to read more about how the brain works. It led me to read, um, oh, the you know the book, the brain that heals itself by Dr. Um, Deutsch, I think, a Canadian researcher who did research in things like compression therapy for um, people who have had uh, a stroke. Um, so he's. Yeah, he's very, very interesting. But it led me to read more and to try to understand the brain more for myself, right? And what I learned was in order to get rid of my disability, I had to force the weak side to work, <laughs> you know? It, it was to to become left-handed instead of right-handed and to retrain uh, these things. And it was just beautiful to see how the brain adapts and changes and, you know, uh, why why, is it, why retrain? Was it like one hemisphere only? Yes, it was uh, the left side of my body, yeah. And oh. it wasn't a stroke. So that's what was fascinating to me was relearning these things. And so when, you know, when we were now, you know, speaking of this um, personal interest in the brain, I can I can relate to that, although I don't have the science background to, uh, you know, to explain any of it. <laughs> well, uh, at the moment, just by observing it, you are better than most scientists already. <laughs> It's curiosity, right? I mean, curiosity drives yep. this kind of exploration. I'm curious to know what um, one of the things that's really big right now um, is, you know, the the use of psychedelics, uh, the use of um, exploration of the brain with that. Is that something that is even, uh, you know, a valid way to look at the brain? Uh, I definitely think so, yes. Um, although I don't follow the literature, I just see it popping up many times in many things I've not really been reading into it but I definitely believe that this is a thing and it's been sort of it's been suppressed for for so many years because it was illegal and people used it to actually induce hallucinations like overdo it but the small dosing and I would even say yeah if, if we could not just put it into the bloodstream and have it run through the brain but if you could applied locally, there would be amazing things that you can do. Like in some parts of epilepsy, you know that the 
like morphines are also active, the endomorphines, so like the, the drug that the brain produces. And, but it's, it's being produced in certain locations only. So it's a bit of a problem that, that with drug taking, if you put it into the bloodstream, if it enters the brain, it's sort of washed all around by the liquid there. But it, it should be applied more locally. It's like with the rhythmic stimulation. If you do it locally, you can be much more sensitive and you would need much lower doses only. And it should be also for a short time only, not just like a permanent increase in level. I think that's what the brain doesn't really like. That's why it comes to sort of this, this un, unsophisticated states of delirium or or if you are drugged, just highly drugged. It's, it's not very... It's just the whole brain doesn't really work properly. But I think if you were able to fine-tune that locally and chemically, of course, yeah. <laughs> I'm a yeah, chemist it's... originally, so I'm all <laughs> okay. for it. <laughs> Is this something not... that... You know, you mentioned that you all you kind of have this audio thing that's happening when you when you look at your own brain. Is it something that you would do? Would you ever try something like psychedelics to try to to un to I, I want to use the word unlock, but it's not accurate. But you know, to kind of see what if that reveals itself is. I mean, it is kind of mysterious, isn't it? Uh, I think it might be an option because it's very clear that some of these. Just that the normal reports that you have from people who take drugs, there are some that just stimulate. And I mean, just LSD in, in a normal sense can just increase the sensitivity for visual and audio. If you just close your eyes, maybe some wheels go around, but you will also suddenly become very sensitive. Also, spatial distortions, I think, are reported. Right. I remember a psychiatrist who I studied who, who told about these things. And so I think it might be fairly straightforward to predict which one will actually increase your auditory background, so to speak. But I'm not sure you want to listen to all of that all the time. I think it must no. be sure that this goes away because I think it can become quite annoying. What about the effects of meditation on the brain? Is that something that you've looked into? Uh, yes, definitely. That's one of the, the experiments that's easy to do. And of course, sharpening the senses is just a direct form of uh, consequence that you have. And I think that's basically it. Yeah, of course, you, you sort of wash away the, 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 the clutter, the rubbish, <laughs> right, <laughs> the nonsense. Right, um, right of course. <laughs> And so it's an interesting thing because there's always this, this idea about is there something like your inner self? Is there something actually down there that maybe wants to come up, right? This is now maybe less scientific, but it's a very interesting thing. Is there something that wants to come up? And meditation is the way, of course, to let it come. If it wants to come, then you let it come. So. Right. It's a, it's fascinating. In the 90s, I really wanted to do a PhD in psychology to study um, creativity, because I think that that's oh. an aspect of the human brain that we don't really understand. And I know that that's not your, your area of research necessarily, but I am curious to know if you happen to know if creativity has a form of rhythm or signals in the same way that um, a disease would have. Uh -huh. I have no idea. I don't think I have ever seen anything in that context. I would 
think yes, but it's all all only metaphorical speaking. So mm-hmm. I hear a lot of people saying that creativity means that means that different network components in the brain sort of collaborate for a moment and join to produce some insight. Insight is thought to be a rhythmic process. So the majority of current science would would think that insight is represented by some rhythmic. A strong rhythm, like a synchronized rhythm or something, where things that are incoherent would suddenly fall into a joint rhythm. So, and the evidence is strong for that, but I think it's only metaphorical. It's not really been actually measured. But that's the thing, right? When it comes to psychological things, or suddenly you're so far detached. Right. From the actual measurement, you measure some po- voltage and that's some ions moving around from here to there. It's a very simple, naive, materialistic picture. And then on the other hand, creativity is like so far away. <laughs> so far away. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I want to speak about the technological side of the research that you're doing. I know that you're using Python which is a computer language that for people who are not programmers, there are various languages in, in technology. Python is one of them. And it is used for many, many, many applications. It is used for, you know, um, programming a web scraping uh, utility to, <laughs> yeah. uh, to doing work in, uh, you know, in, uh, in medicine. Why specifically Python? Um, it's historically for me very simple. It came when I was uh, employed at the University College in London. Um, they had a requirement. Uh, so I was employed to do online teaching. This was in 2013 when most people thought online teaching is a nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> and and they had the requirement that we teach MATLAB because they had some border license or something. So we did that for a couple of years. And I had a student, a student was a computer scientist who did a thesis with me. And he said, look, get rid of all this license nonsense, use a proper open source language that has a good community behind it. And then we looked into it and we found that actually, of course, a worldwide community of developers that adhere to standards and that have just anything that is the latest type and the best, it's being implemented, among other things, in Python. And so we thought it's, as a high-level language, it's easy for the medical doctors to use. And it's universally used by now that we didn't know it at that time, but we kind of predicted that it would become a de facto standard in machine learning at least in the biosciences where I'm on the biomedicine. And then it was a natural step forward. And now we have right. the program running. And, and so I guess, uh, what exactly are you doing with it? Are you building, um, so you're doing all your ag- algorithms in Python and that's what's churning out the, all the data that you're studying? Yeah, so I use it for research or so the clinic. I don't really go to the clinic very often. They give me their data and I work on them. And then for teaching, I just teach people with a bio background how to use it. And that's any background. It's genetics and proteins and physiology and everything. And yeah, that's mostly my job. <laughs> okay. And now, and of course, so... because of the pandemics, a lot of this is online. Yes. So we are teaching that all over the United Kingdom, essentially. 
Okay, interesting. And so I guess, yeah, open source is, is just a great idea because then, like, um, you know, it, it allows people to have access to it, um, not just in the UK, but also outside of the UK. I would imagine, is this becoming the kind of international standard as well? Um, I will say, I think it's, uh, uh, there will always be reason to use other languages as well. So rather than becoming the one standard, I think there will always be multiple languages at the same time. Like when we're thinking about real-time uh, access to signals and processing things in real-time and like whatever comes in, you immediately processing uh, JavaScript, there will be an interface to JavaScript. And then in the background, of course, Python is not a very fast language, so you will always want to do C or C++ below it. So run on a pre-compiled code rather than doing it in Python. It's no use. Just use the old good classics and just interface nicely and hide it under the surface. So there's is always there a room role... for other. Well, I was going to say, is there a role in here for artificial intelligence to start playing you know, a, a bigger role in this kind of research? Yeah, I think most people that I talk to, they don't even know the difference between machine learning and artificial intelligence. It's sort of taken some fancy programming, which, of course, often it is. But uh, my, my, my thought would be that, that the future exciting development would not be called artificial development, but artificial life. So we actually try to create something that sort of self-organizes like a single cellular organism and starts floating around and interacts and learns its own environment. So it's sort of yet a higher level. I have a question about that. There's this um, you know, expression among the general population sometimes with scientists where they say, just because they should, perhaps they shouldn't. Uh, just because you can, maybe you, you shouldn't. Uh, what do, you, do you think it's a good idea to start developing artificial life? Um, I would definitely think it's a scientific progress if you understand life better. Uh, whether that leads to anything that is unwanted or so, I'm not sure about it. But as a scientist, I would rather say before you before you don't do something without knowing what it even is, you better get to know it. So I'm very much in favor of learning things and understanding things because then you can assess the risk of what's going to happen. Because now what you see under the heading of artificial intelligence, basically that's mythology or that's just uh, people's imagination. And it's mostly inspired by science fiction, I think, rather than by proper understanding. Because if you drill into uh, artificial intelligence, it's, it's not you don't understand it. It's true, but it's not very difficult. It's, it's algorithms that work according to rules and... I know they, they spit out sometimes unusual events, but they're very far from doing anything really remarkable, I think. No, I think you're right, actually. Um, most people are scared of these kind of like war robots taking over the planet or, you know, uh, artificial insects, know, yeah. uh, you know, uh, consuming humans for, for energy. <laughs> but you're right, it, well, is, it is derived from, from, from sci-fi. But I, I do see I do see the danger, of course, because you, every every human has the possibility of designing malicious things, 
And if people sit down and try to invent something maliciously, I think it will also be malicious. I think it's easy to do bad things. Right, right now you you find the vulnerable point. I don't know what what's the latest. I just heard that the the one one port in a harbor in in Shenzhen in southern China was blocked because there was a, a case of COVID, and then the authorities sort of overreacted and said, "Oh, we have to block that harbor. Ships coming in and out, and now there's like thousands of ships standing, and all the the worldwide delivery of say microchips." help is <laughs> interrupted just a few days ago is it just this morning and so if you find this vulnerable point and say oh there's this one point where 80 percent of chips go through this one and so if i disturb that i can actually sort of cause chaos in the world and this is of course very likely to happen so i'm, I'm not saying it's not there this, this possibility is very real and mm -hmm. i just guess as we are speaking people are designing viruses that are even worse than coronavirus or um, entry points into blocking, I don't know, the electricity system and such things. But it happens, basically, you are defending. If you have a, a, a infrastructure, you are constantly defending yourself from attacks. Right. right and so right. there is there is a problem because the, the AI um, program is much faster than governments and administrations and software updates. <laughs> uh, you, you've just made a very great point, which is that the bureaucracy is always slower to catch up to technolo technological innovations. Um, and all, uh, of course, answering to malicious, uh, you know, inventions is, is going to be a problem, especially in the future. But in your case, I mean, I guess your, your goal, your passion is to decode this, this, you know, this disease, this, these signals from these diseases. Um, do you, do you feel like that's something that you will achieve in your lifetime? Um, well, I think I will get to the point where I'll actually make predictions and I test the predictions. So that would okay. be, that would be my goal. And see, if I fail, it's okay. I don't have much problem with a failure in that sense, but I would like to actually make a prediction and stimulate and see how it compares to what I thought should happen. And this is within reach. I think it's within reach. So we're just putting together a bigger group. But So that would be the thing. That would be marvelous, and then that's that potentially could happen very soon if your if your research starts in August in in uh, Beijing. Yeah, but that's only the start of putting a group together. Until this okay. all gets clinical approval, that might be a long time until. And it's yeah, but if you remember before, I said this is people before surgery who have multiple seizures every day and who really have a miserable life before this. So the need to actually do something is there. So it's this endless despair that the neurosurgeon has when they just can't really help easily. And so there's a, a, a driving force to actually come up with something that's better than the current status, which is like right. taking out a, a, a lobe of the brain and throwing it away. So is there... Um... Is this something that keeps you up at night? Is this something that you're so passionate about? It seems to me like you uh, you have a lot of uh, great thoughts about the topic. You seem very passionate. I mean, we're on video right now, and, and I, I can see you speaking about this topic with great passion. 
Um, is this something that consumes all of your waking life? I, I think actually it's a lot there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe too much, a little <laughs> bit, but it takes it takes a lot of thinking. As because you when, when you see those data when they come in, and then you go through them and it's like a recording, right? You 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 sample every what is that every millisecond, and you have that for a week. So they line the hospital for a week with the electrodes there. So it's thousands and thousands of data points, and when you go through them. The nice thing is you start to learn, you get to know that person. So even though it's not somebody who is there, just their brain signals. And then when I come back the next, I say, oh, I know you. Yeah. <laughs> and this, this, is a, this is a nice thing, but it's, of course, pulling me into it. That, that's kind right. of, I, I need to sort of <laughs> push myself <laughs> out on the weekend and go a little bit into the nature to get to different thoughts. Well, that's my next question is, what do you do for personal enrichment? What what other things? I, I really like to ask scientists on my show, you know, what other things do you do in your life other than science? Um, are you an artist? Are you uh, a naturalist? What, what do you enjoy doing? Oh, yeah, running around in nature. That's, mm-hmm. I think that's how I found a tiny world. Yes. And I always, <laughs> yeah, just... Just last night, I came back from a lake, brought some sample. I don't know, maybe like you do, with somewhere, I suspect. A stentor. Do you know stentor? Yes, I love stentors. They're, they're attached to something. So I collected some of those where the pollen uh, lies on the water surface, like from the pine trees. And sometimes they hang there, so downward. So the pollen yes. is on the surface and they hang down. So I got some. That's why I got this glass. Here. <laughs> Did you end up getting yourself a home microscope? Yeah, I have a rodenstock here, a very good one. Wonderful. <laughs> but that's from when I was a teenager. I did that. <laughs> well, so like a high school project, and my parents actually bought me that thing. It's like a binocular, and it's a good one. Now, I have had that for fifty years now. <laughs> no, forty-five. Wow. Forty-five years. And I'm, so that, I'm curious, what what led you to settle in London? Um, uh, I live north of London, like near Manchester, but mm-hmm. uh, I had a job in Mexico. So I worked eight years in Mexico. And when I decided I want to go back to Europe, I had a job in, in Manchester. It just happened to be a job there for biophysics or something that I had studied. So I came to Manchester, and then from there I applied to London, and now I'm working in the university college, but I still live here. We have a house here. This is Cheshire here. This is a very green province, very green hills and sheep, more sheep than people. (laughs) (laughs) I think at one point... Well, I was going to say at one point, uh, next time I'm, I'm visiting Europe, I'll have to stop by in the UK and get all of my scientist guests together because I've had wonderful guests from the UK, from aquatic ecologists to, mm-hmm. you know, um, marine biologists. Uh, there's a great uh, scientific network in the, in the, in the, in the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so good. I'm, I'm, I will be there. <laughs> uh, yes, it would be wonderful. <laughs> uh, so... So what is the the next plan? You've got the research coming up in China. Um, do you have other collaborations with other scientists that you're working on? 
Yeah, in London, it's mostly, there's a very famous uh, neurology in London. So with the neurosurgery and everything. So I collaborate with those people because they are in my university, uh, specifically the children's hospital there, which is very nice because that's, I mean, if you think adults with epilepsy are miserable, children are much worse. It's really right. unbelievable. You don't want to see that. And that's a very good collaboration that I have. So we just had a graduate finishing the PhD last Friday. I was very proud. <laughs> so she did auditory signals. So she said some words. Yeah, she had some recorded words. And the children just sat there, listened to it. And she recorded the signals in the auditory cortex. So we could see, whoop, oh, and say, carrot. Wow. <laughs> what is her name? So we can uh, shout, give her a shout out. What is her name? Birgit, Birgit Pimpel. Okay, great. Vietnam, uh, she's now in Vienna. Oh, she's in Vienna now, of course, right? With uh, with researchers, you end up traveling around the world and working in different places, different countries. What is, um, I'm really curious, because you have done teaching and research pretty much all over the world. Uh, is there a, an experience that you recall very fondly about your research up to date? Uh, yes, teaching in China. <laughs> oh. What about it was so special? Um, uh, maybe it's a bit related to that before, so that I suddenly entered a world where I had no idea what was going on. So I couldn't understand anything. I couldn't read anything. And very few people were actually able to communicate with me because I thought, well, we just speak English, don't we? And some did, but most didn't. It was in some, some province, in, in Hunan province. And I think that was incredible and it makes me want to go back. So I think the next step will be China. Ah, wonderful. Well, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the program. I have learned so much um, about this <laughs> this research. I actually will. I, so I'm actually learning more coding out of uh, personal but also professional uh, interest. And so uh, Python is next on my list after I master JavaScript. So <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's something yeah, I'll definitely... Active. Yes, yes. Uh, we have to always keep learning, right? So mm. uh, thank you again for being on the program. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Julie. It was fantastic. Mm -hmm.